Um, I was preparing uh, for my communion group this week and uh, I like to spice things up generally so we, we tried with some icebreaker questions. Uh, I can't figure them out on my own so I went to the internet to research some of them. Uh, so some questions that we kind of threw out were, uh, which one are you more likely to fight for? Love or money? Which one would you fight for? Love or money? A lot of people went for, for money because you can always buy love. Well, that's what they said. Um, another question was, if you had to live without one of your five senses, uh, which one would it be? Which one would you live without? I'll, I'll leave that one for you to kind of think about. Uh, there, was, there was a question that was kind of in my internet research, which I actually didn't write down, uh, which was, how do you define love? How do you define love? Um, each of these questions had some explanatory notes to help you understand whether what this question was about. And the explanatory note for this question was, Love is one of those intangible concepts that everyone experiences in their own unique way. Uh, it's this idea that everyone kind of has an idea of what is love and so we all have an ability to kind of uh, say something to the question. Um, I mean, what would you say? Uh, I was reading my son a book uh, which kind of deals on this topic, What is Love? Uh, it says, love is kisses and cuddles, hugs and squeezes. We've trained him to, to hug and squeeze us when, when, when we read this out. Um, but... What's more, it says love is this, but it's also more. Love is, is waiting your turn. Love is taking a deep breath and counting to five when you feel cross. Love lets others have a go and hopes they do well. Well, this is what my, my son's book says. If I was to ask you right now, what is love, what would you say? What would you say? See, the passage that we just read out uh, kind of goes and answers this question, what is love? But John, the, the writer and author of this letter to a church community, uh, defines love with a very specific intention. See, John is writing to give assurance to a church community, uh, to remind them that they really do have a real relationship with God. And he says, if you have a real relationship with God, you, you love others. And so the reason he goes to kind of answer this question, what is love, is so they can kind of analyse, am I kind of living up to this, to this definition of love? Am I living up to this definition of love? So often in the last few weeks, as, we, as we've looked at the letter of 1 John, we've been reminded that if you know God, then you, then you love others. I want to tease out the implications of what this means in our time together this morning. So we so far said, well, if you know God, then you love others. But I want us to consider what happens if you don't know God? Then what? If you don't call, call yourself a believer in Jesus, does that mean you don't love others? Does that mean you, you can't love others? Does that mean you shouldn't love others? What, what does it mean if you don't know God? As we look at this passage, I want to suggest it's only those who have a relationship with God who can truly love others. Let me say that again. The only way we can truly love others is to be in a relationship with God. The only way we can truly love others is to be in a relationship with God. There's at least one person here right now who's saying, how can you even say that? I know heaps of people, friends, family members, they're, they're either atheists, they're agnostic, they're, they might be a Christian, they might not be a Christian, but they definitely love people. How can you say that it's only people that follow Jesus that, that truly love others? I think this is a really good question, a really good objection. But I want to say, can you kind of pause and suspend your judgment or disbelief for the next half an hour? Because I want to see, as we look at this passage, I want to try to convince you that it's only in relationship with Jesus that you can fully and freely love others. If you want to kind of follow along and follow an outline, there's, a, there's one on the inside left-hand co cover of your bulletin. And basically, we're going to see how a relationship with God 
helps you, leads you to love others. It shows you how to love others. And I think this is the key point. It frees you to love others. A relationship with God leads you to love others, shows you how to love others, and ultimately frees you to love others. Okay, so if someone knows God, they are led to love others. Let's look there, uh, down at that passage. Look there with me, verse 7. John writes, "Uh, Everyone who loves has been born of God and knows God. He, if you're saying this guy's a bit repetitive, uh, you would be correct. Uh, we've heard at least one or two other sermons that have kind of made this connection, this idea that a relationship with Jesus is not one of kind of ecstatic spiritual enlightenment. Faith is not kind of intellectual or abstract. And faith is not disconnected from this world. John reminds us, if, if you know God, then there are real world implications for that. A relationship with God leads you to love others. If you want to look back in chapter 2, verse 6, we see whoever claims to live in him must live as Jesus did. In chapter 3, verse 11, for this is the message you have heard from the beginning. We should love one another. Throughout this letter, it's this kind of constant reoccurring theme that John is connecting the the, the vertical dimension, our relationship with God, uh, with the horizontal aspect of life in this world a relationship with others. Our relationship with God affects how we treat, how we interact with the people around us. Someone writes this, there can be no real knowledge of God which is not expressed in love for fellow believers. No real knowledge of God unless it's kind of transferred or connected to us loving other people. And throughout, even in this passage, it's this idea over and over again. The horizontal connects with the, 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 the vertical connects to the horizontal. Look there at verse 21. Anyone who loves God must also love their brother and sister. Knowing God uh, propels us outward to love others. But what's the reason that there's such close connection between knowing God and, and loving others? Well, I think it's there in verse 7, isn't it? Love comes from God. See, in relationship with God, we start to recognise who God is transforms who we are. Who God is transforms who we are. Who is God? Well, in this passage, in verse 8, in verse 16, we are told that God is love. His, his essence, his actions all demonstrate love. You ever, have you ever had a friend that kind of constantly talks about the same kind of thing over and over again? I'm sure everyone's got one person in their life. Um, before I had my son come along, uh, I used to kind of uh, cycle a bit with some other people in the church. And part of the reason I, I got so excited about it is they kept on talking about it over and over again. Um, pastoral meetings would be like 10% Bible, 90% cycling. No, not really. But there's a potential for that. Um, it's so easy when people kind of talk about the same thing over and over again, you kind of get swept up in their passion. You start to kind of absorb it without even really trying to. And, and so John is trying to just remind us that the natural implication of knowing a God who is love is to then, who demonstrates love, is to be people who are loving. Who he is transforms who we are. John's reminder here is the fundamental orientation of the believer to love others is grounded in, is rooted in their relationship with God. It's grounded and rooted in their relationship with God. Verse 19, we love because he first loved us. We're able to know what true love is because of who God is and what he has done 
for us. If God is love, then we cannot know how to love. We cannot love if we don't have a relationship with him. See, the application of what John is saying is is actually kind of important. It challenges us to think about what is our reference point to what we think love is, to how we will go and answer the question, what is love? See, John reminds us that our reference point, our definition, has to be God, a relationship with him and what he has done for us. But as you try to answer the question, what is love, what kind of voices are you pulling from to kind of come up with your answer? See, I want to suggest that it's so easy to kind of hear the voices of this world to help define what love is. Maybe it's kind of watching romantic comedies that kind of influence what you think love is. You know, Love Actually, great movie. Uh, I don't know, what romantic comedies kind of really do it for you? They go, yeah, that's love. Yeah, that that guy chasing after that girl and and she's running away. She's like, no. Uh, Maybe that's what you think love is. Uh, maybe at school, what friends, friends kind of tell you what their, their boyfriend or their first boyfriend or girlfriend has done for them. You're like, oh yeah, that's so romantic. Maybe that's love. Maybe you, you read the latest New York Times bestseller and that's kind of talking about love and you're like, oh yeah, I think love is, love is all about that. Or maybe, though we probably wouldn't admit it to anyone else here, is it's reality TV about love that defines how we think about love. The Bachelor, Bachelorette, there's this new show on TV that's about to air, uh, Married at First Sight. I'm not sure if you if you tell people you're going to watch that, but you know these kind of reality TV shows talk about love, kind of um, ha- have a viewpoint of what love is, and and I want to suggest that they actually subtly influence what you think love is. See, John reminds us here: if you want to be someone that knows how to love others, if you want to start to be someone that can love others fully, then you need to be rooted and grounded in a relationship with God. He's the ultimate definition of love. He demonstrates great love. And in relationship with him, you have an opportunity to love others. So that's why being in relationship with God propels us outward. But what exactly is it? Well, I think that leads us to our second point. See, a relationship with God shows us how to love others. We see there in verses 9 and 10, uh, really what love is. Uh, the same idea kind of repeated in, in two slightly different ways to kind of explain love. Let me read it out for us. Verse 9 and 10. This is how God showed his love among us. He sent his one and only son into the world that we might live through him. This is love. Not that we loved God, but he loved us and sent his son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. So it's in these two verses that we see what love is. Love is not defined by how we feel about God or how we feel about others. Love is defined by what God has done. What has he done? Well, to repeat it twice in verses 9 and 10, we see that love is the act of God giving up his one and only son. Love is defined by costly sacrifice undergirded by humility. Love is defined by costly sacrifices undergirded by humility. See, God... In this story, it doesn't kind of just give up something that's kind of ordinary and common, like, you know, I'll just give up, you know, one of my teddy bears. I've got 20,000, I'll give you one of them. No! He sends something which is absolutely precious to him, his one and only son. Whether you've kind of been in church for a while, or whether you're just visiting today, or maybe he's talked to someone on the street, it's likely in Australia anyway that they would have heard that there was a man called Jesus and supposedly he died uh, as a sacrifice for people or he died on people's behalf. 
The idea that Jesus died for other people is something that's pretty common and ordinary. And I think we've lost the gravity of exactly the cost that it was. I had a friend um, at a wedding. We were at once. It was a high school friend and he was a non-Christian. And we were listening to the sermon. And the sermon was actually on this passage. At the, uh, at the end of the wedding, he was, I was talking to him and he said this, how can you say that a father sending his son to die is an act of love? This isn't an act of love at all. It's, it's a tragedy that you would even consider this love. It's an act of brutality. Other people have said about this passage, it's an act of uh, cosmic child abuse. You send your son to die? That's not an act of love. What we need to remember is that Jesus didn't go unwillingly to die on the cross. He went willingly as an act of love to die in the place of others. This is a grand gesture of costly sacrifice, of great love. God sends Jesus knowing that he will ultimately die on the cross. See, love here is marked by a humility, a willingness to move towards others knowing that they would never move to you, a willingness to count the cost and not calling others to do it instead. If you look at love in this world, sometimes it's marked by self-interest. You know, we love others because they make us feel nice and warm and gooey inside. They make us want to be a better person. They bring a smile to our face. You know, that's, that's kind of what love is kind of articulated sometimes. But so often love really is about uh, a selflessness, a, a, a self-sacrifice. But as we think about people's love in this world, their, 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 their willingness to sacrifice themselves for others, I want, to, I want to suggest to you that there are boundaries or parameters around that selflessness. Uh, Terry read about uh, a story about forgiveness. I mean, think about it. In the act, it's an act of, of love to forgive others. See, it's an act of self-sacrifice uh, to give up your rights to, to punish others and instead to reconcile a relationship. But aren't there so often limits around how many times you're willing to forgive someone? I mean, think about it. Think about someone that's hurt you in the past and maybe they apologise and you go, okay, fine this time. Say it happen again and again, like five times. How, 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 many, how many times are you willing to forgive someone until you say, no, that, that, that's it, you, you need to learn your lesson? See, there are limits on how long we're willing to put up with those people that are just really annoying in this world. There are limits to kind of how selfless we are. In contrast to all of this, God shows us that love is marked by a selfless and costly sacrifice. His love is marked by humility, a willingness to give up what he wanted and what he desired, a joyful, perfect relationship for the benefit of others. We read in Romans 5, verse 7 and 8, Very rarely will anyone die for a righteous man, though for a good person someone might possibly dare die. But God demonstrates his love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Love is marked by costly sacrifice. Love is also about relationship. It's, it's, there's an other-centeredness about love, isn't there? See, we see in this passage, God sends his only son uh, for the purpose of drawing people back into a relationship with him. Someone writes this, Love means forgiving the sins of the beloved and remembering them no more. We just heard uh, John remind us earlier uh, that love, uh, that sorry, sin is essentially turning away from God. 
recognising that, that we do not live up to God's perfect standard even though we may feel that sometimes we're good people because we look around and see how we're better than maybe those that are out there in this world. But we are reminded constantly that sin is not just bad things, it's ultimately a rejection of who God is. A God who created the whole world and calls us lovingly to live in a certain way that would best benefit us. See, the Bible reminds us that the penalty of of, of living in such a way, of rebelling against God, is that we would come under his anger, his judgment, that we would ultimately be people who die. Yet this passage reminds us, Jesus demonstrates love. Instead of calling us to pay for our sinful decisions, Jesus takes our places. He takes the penalty of the guilty and dies on the cross. He takes the, the record of the guilty so that those that believe in him would be given his perfect record of innocence and obedience. And we see Jesus' actions described in verse 10. See there, Jesus is sent as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. To atone is to make it complete or whole. The other day, I walked up to my car and saw a little piece of paper on it. But good when there's a piece of paper on your car. Uh, Last time, it was someone advertising something. This time, it was a parking fine. What's worse though was I parked in front of my house. There is this random silly bus stop in front of my house. It's an old weathered yellow sign that doesn't even look like there's a bus stop anymore. My, my road is a road that like, buses rarely go down and they rarely stop. no one wants to stop outside our house at a bus stop. Um, and so I just parked there. It was appropriate distance away from the bus stop. Well, I consider it my... Right, but the bus company had complained that people were parking there and they sent these people and oh, I was given a parking fine or parking ticket. I appealed it and it was rejected. So I'm gonna, I guess I'm going to have to pay it tomorrow or something. See, as, as I broke the, the law by parking this place, um, th- I'm no longer on good terms with the council. They want me to pay up or essentially because if I don't pay up, they're going to send me to jail or, or something like that. To atone or, or make right for me breaking the law, uh, I have to pay a fine. Uh, but as I pay for the fine, as I essentially atone for breaking the law, I'm now uh, brought back into a, a, a good relationship with the council. They no longer want to sentence me to, to jail. They're no longer angry at me. See, the reality is in a similar way, as Jesus dies on the cross in our place, he is an atoning sacrifice. He turns away the anger and judgment of God that is due upon us for us breaking the law and brings us back into a healthy relationship with God. A price has been paid, but it's not us who's had to pay it, it's Jesus. See, in Jesus we see love. Love that is marked by other-centred, other-person-focused. Love is not focusing on ourselves, but is on others. A willingness to prize relationship more than we focus on ourselves. In these two verses, John reminds us of the very essence of love, which is demonstrated in Jesus. Love is costly. It's masked by a humility that often leads to sacrifice. Love is about relationship. It's about living for something bigger and more than just yourself. And so as he defines exactly what love is, John reminds us that we can only love others in this way if we're in a relationship to God. We can only love others in this way if we're in a relationship to God. The reason? A relationship with God frees us to love others. That leads us to our last point. See, this freedom that we have in relationship to God stems from a, a, a place of confidence and, and fearlessness. 
See, so often we are people that love others to a point. We love others until it becomes a bit too costly, a bit too inconvenient, a bit too tiresome. But John reminds us that in relationship with God, we are given an ability to move beyond these limitations. In relationship with God, we are free to love others. Look there in verse 17 and 18 with me. Let me read that to us quickly. This is how love is made complete among us so that we will have confidence on the day of judgment. In this world, we are like Jesus. There is no fear in love, but perfect love drives out fear because fear has to do with punishment. The one who, who fears is not paid perfect in love. Have you ever heard this statement before? Perfect love drives out fear. It sounds so, so impressive, right? Perfect love drives out fear. Uh, that would be a bit abstract. I mean, what does it even mean? What exactly are we afraid of? How does love even like, drive out fear? John tells us in this passage that, that fear, fear is connected to punishment. It's connected to this reality that one day we will all stand before God. We'll all be called to give an account of how we've lived in this world. And as we stand before God, we, we rightly feel fear. We're afraid to be judged. We realise that as good as we want to think of ourselves, we aren't perfect people. We haven't loved God or others perfectly. But the reason perfect love drives out fear is that the perfect love is not our love that somehow magically transforms when we know Jesus, but perfect love is, is exemplified in Jesus as he dies on the cross. John is saying, as you stand before God, ready to be judged, even though you have rejected him and walked, walked away from him, even though you're worthy of judgment, because Jesus died on the cross, you will not be declared guilty. Jesus has taken the guilty verdict in your place. You'll be saved. You'll be called to live in God's kingdom for all eternity. John can say to those who believe, who have a relationship with God, do not fear the day of judgment. And so that's why in verse 17 he says this idea that those that live like Jesus don't have anything to fear. It's this idea of what it means that love is made complete. God in sending Jesus has an ultimate aim for people to be drawn back into relationship with him and the evidence that they are in relationship with him is they live like Jesus. They live like Jesus. God's purposes in sending Jesus are achieved as he sees the fruit and evidence of people believing, of people in relationship with him as they love others. See, in relationship with Jesus, there is no longer fear, but more than that, there is joy. Jesus dies on our behalf and we're drawn and brought into God's family. We're adopted. We share the benefits and the privileges of what it means to be part of a royal family. We now have a loving Heavenly Father who constantly provides and protects for his children. We have the unconditional love and approval of this Father we gain the abundant riches and spiritual blessings on what it means to be part of a royal family. In relationship with Jesus, we are in a place of total abundance. Let me say that again. In a, place, in a relationship with Jesus, we're in a place of total abundance. And it is from this abundance that we are not only compelled, but freed and equipped to love others in a radically different way. We're equipped to love others in a radically different way. Right at the beginning, I was going to say that only those that know Jesus can love others truly and likely people would, oh, that, that's so untrue, that's so untrue. 
Let me show you two ways in which I think this works itself out. The first is how we forgive others. See, one way to love others is by forgiving them, right? Forgiveness is not about forgetting what people have done against us, but it's this willingness not to hold things against them if they come to us seeking reconciliation. But think about how that normally works out. You know, you're, you're at school and you find out, you know, make a friend has is, is been making fun of you and that, you know, you don't really like that. And so uh, you start to give them the silent treatment, but then you realise you like them so much and they apologise and so you go, okay, let's, let's, let's be friends again, then you move on. This probably happens uh, at university, in the workplace, people say stuff about us, we get annoyed, they apologise hopefully as we confront them and, and we forgive them. But what do you do if, you, if they do it again? Do you forgive them? How many times um, do you allow them to do it and, and then say sorry before you say no and enough is enough? See, the conventional worldly wisdom says there has to be a limit. There has to be a limit. You need to protect yourself. You can't just be a doormat. You can't just let people walk over you, abuse you and then say, well, that's okay. If we start to understand the love of God, I think we're challenged to respond in a different way. See, we recognise the nature of love is costly. And so we are people who continue to persist in forgiving others even though it is hard. See, in a relationship with God, we know that we have a heavenly Father that protects us, that looks out for us. A God who calms the storms and raises people from the dead. In a relationship with God, we are free to radically love others, to forgive others because we don't need to create a safety net of our own. We have someone else doing a much better job at that than us, God. As we, free, as we forgive others, as we open ourselves to possible abuse, in faith we, we demonstrate that we trust that God is alive at work and ready to protect us. Obviously there is this wisdom and nuance around how we go about forgiving others, but I want to suggest that so often we're really willing to put up a safety net more than we're willing to let God be our safety net and to once again forgive someone else. I think the second thing uh, or the second way in which God's love and our relationship with him is transformed is how we think about relating to others. Um, some of you may have heard of the idea of a love tank. So in relationships, there's this concept of a love tank. It's this imaginary tank that, that either gets filled or depleted based on what others do. Uh, so if your boyfriend buys you flowers, you know, some stuff goes in that tank to make it fill up. If your husband forgets your anniversary, um, it kind of goes down. And the aim is to have a healthy relationship whereby you're constantly looking to love the other person well by doing stuff that's, that's kind to them, that they appreciate, and so as to fill up their tank. And, and it really helps you to kind of weather the storms in this world. And this seems like a fair and helpful way to operate, right? We are thoughtful of others and try to love them in a way that they appreciate and so they have the energy in which to kind of love others as well. If we step back for a moment and think about this kind of economy, it can quickly be reduced to a, you scratch your, my back and I'll scratch yours. I like back scratches. So I'll kind of, but you scratch my back and I'll scratch yours. We try and fill others' tanks in the hope that they will reciprocate and do the same to us. But what quickly can happen is the source of our ability to love too quickly stems from others and what they do to us. The problem of this economy quickly becomes apparent. I mean, how long do we continue to persist in loving others knowing that our tank is empty and low? Is there a limitation before we pull the pin and find someone else that can better our tanks faster. 
See, what initially sounds like a good idea, I think actually pushes against this radical idea of the love of God. The love of God pushes us in this uncomfortable and radical direction. We continue to love others even though our tanks may be empty and dry. Even when people don't show us the appreciation and care that we desire or deserve. Why? Because instead of being filled by others, the gospel says we are people who are transformed by God. The source of our love stems from the infinite God who dwells within us. Through the Holy Spirit, having a relationship with God, we are given the strength, endurance to love others, even though we may be empty and dry. See, friends, in a relationship with God, our hearts are transformed. We're given new designs. We don't just tap out when we're feeling low. We persevere, not out of a determined self-control, but by the power of the Holy Spirit who fuels, energizes, strengthens us to love others. See, once again, there's a limitation. Love tanks can too quickly put a limitation on what we're expected to do. But the love of God pushes us to realise that there are no bounds, that we do persist to go on even though others may not reciprocate. This is the costly nature of the love of God working out inside of us that we ultimately see demonstrated in what Jesus has done. We seek to love without limits because the God who is loved without limits lives in us and empowers us to do so. Let me say that again. We seek to love without limits because the God who has loved without limits lives in us and empowers us to do so. Anytime you, you call for a radical, limitless, boundaryless kind of action, whatever it is, love in this case, people will always put up their hands and go, oh, I'm just going to get trampled on. Something's going to go wrong. And that's likely the case. Let me just say that there is a nuance needed to loving others. You don't always have to respond in a, a predetermined, special kind of way. I think what this passage reminds us is that so often and too quickly do we put bounds and limitations on our actions towards others and deny that, that God's radical, life-changing love can work itself out in us. See, friends, everyone in this world loves, but there's always a limit before we start to doubt our investments. The person who knows Jesus the one who is in a relationship with him is not just called to radically love others, but is empowered, freed to radically love other people. The reason we do this is because we have our brother Jesus who has been our perfect model for us. We have God, the Holy Spirit, who lives inside of us, empowering us to move outwards and love others. I pray uh, that we wouldn't just know this idea that a relationship with God makes us or calls us to love others but that we would love others in a radically costly and humble way, seeking relationship more than we seek our pleasure of ourselves. Let me pray. And Father God, I pray as we are reminded of what Jesus did on the cross on our behalf of God's people, that we would be so transformed, so um, amazed at your sacrifice, at your love, that we would want to love others. I pray that we would not just try to love others out of our own steam, out of our energy, but that you, living inside of us through your Holy Spirit, would equip us, equip us to love others. We pray all this in Jesus' most precious name. Amen.